heavily, I'm a clown. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin paper mache. Today, I brought my friend Ben back on the show. He was in episode 14. If you didn't listen, you should probably go listen to that one first. Uh, it was called the Bitcoin Spectrum, and it was episode 14. Definitely recommend you guys listen to that one, but you're going to love this one today. Ben is super smart. I love having him on the show. Can't wait to share this one with you guys. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Ben, how you doing, man? I'm good. What's going on, Colin? Welcome back to the Echo Chamber. Feels good to be back. Yeah, it's it's getting a little bit... Uh, my head is ringing a little bit from all the echoing in here, but it, <laughs> it turns out we might have been right. <laughs> Why? Did you? Is, did something happen with the price? Yeah, I think it went up. I don't know. I haven't really looked, but everyone keeps saying that it went up. But I also heard it crashed again, so maybe we might... I might be speaking too soon. Yeah, well... It, it was too expensive when it went up, and now that it's crashed, it's probably going to zero, right? Right. Well, I mean, it went all the way up to 13000 and then it crashed all the way back down to 11000 So, I mean, I think, this is, I think this thing is pretty much done. Yep. We're just going to pack up. Just shut down the podcast. Maybe, maybe I might do like another couple weeks. We'll see how things go. I don't oh, know. okay. No, I'm, I'm, t- I'm totally kidding, guys. I don't know. If, uh, it's, 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 it's sarcasm, you know? It's <laughs> like when you say the opposite, or, or like irony, you know, where you say the opposite of what you actually think. That's that's what I'm doing right now. So Ben and I, uh, Ben and I talk a lot, and Ben is probably one of the favorite guests that I've had on the show. Uh, he was on back in episode 14, and if you guys did not listen to that, you need to go check it out because it was a great conversation. Because Ben is uh, Ben Ben is the one who planted the seed in my mind about the Renaissance man in Bitcoin. You know who who has a rounded enough understanding of the world to really get why this thing is, is so important. And, and we go back and forth a lot on Twitter DMs about little things that we're seeing, like little patterns that we're picking up on in the meta here that is setting this macroeconomic stage for something crazy. And, and I don't really know, like, we don't even really know where we're going with this. We just kind of like to go back and forth with it because there's a lot of really, really interesting patterns that we're picking up on. Um, uh, we we were just talking right before the stream started about the news that the the state run news agency in China put out a piece that basically says Bitcoin is a safe haven asset, uh, and and it, we thought it might be kind of fun to role play a little bit about the nation states of the world. It's like okay, I'm the United States government, and Bitcoin is a thing. It's 2019, 2020. Macroeconomics don't look good. What now? What's the what's the move? What do we do? Right, like, what if what if the government hired Colin and I to try to figure out what's the best way to, I mean, do, do we try to kill Bitcoin, or do we try to profit from it, and what's the best way to do that, right? And, uh, I mean, it, to, to understand what we mean by the macro situation right now, um, Kyle Torpy just uh, 
tweeted something from, uh, I think it's Brendan Bernstein, said, uh, if you locked me in a room, I don't think I could design a more perfect macro environment for Bitcoin than what we have right now. And and that's, I mean, that's really, I think, the, the context is extremely important here, is that, I mean, we're at the, the height of this uh, equity, the, one of the longest bull runs in history, we're at the top of the market, and, you know, the federal government's talking about cutting rates more, which would be... Uh, I mean, that could be a sign of a lot of things. Uh, it, it sounds like in this situation, it's a sign that the people that do hold equities think that we might be near the top of uh, maybe a bubble, right? And uh, the fact that, you know, we're not really at war, uh, we're, you know, the markets are great, and the, and the Fed is talking about cutting rates, uh, it's, it, to me, it just cries of desperation, right? So, if we're the federal government, we're trying to figure out what to do about Bitcoin, and we're desperate. There is the conjecture that you know one of these state actors actually buys some Bitcoin, and one of the problems with a an entity this large trying to acquire some is that Bitcoin doesn't have a lot of of, of liquidity at this scale, because uh, if you think, I mean, the market cap is a little over two hundred and twenty billion. So, I mean, the government deals in trillions of dollars. Their, you know, their budget is a few trillion dollars each year. So if they were going to acquire an amount of Bitcoin, you know, to, to hold in reserve, you know, just this very hypothetical, um, then them doing so would actually send Bitcoin, quote, to the moon. Just, just them just buying a little bit because and, and it's so much. An interesting thing to consider here, uh, I don't think I think people overestimate the liquidity available of this market. I, you know, I have a friend uh, who will remain nameless, but he has a, a large amount of Bitcoin, and he has people reaching out to him right now uh, on behalf of OTC desks trying to acquire liquidity. Like, hey, uh, we know you have a lot of Bitcoin. If you want to sell some Bitcoin, we need some Bitcoin. When you have people cold calling you to sell your Bitcoin, you know that the OTC desks they need liquidity. Everyone wants to buy this thing, and there just isn't enough to go around. Yeah, and and you've talked about that when um you know what what happens when liquidity dries up, you know if if the people holding it now, and obviously there's a lot of different types of people holding it right now, but if you know a large percentage of the people holding it now are these um these uh, z zealotrous Bitcoin holders of last resort, then you know where where is the Bitcoin to buy? It's really only coming from the miners, which are dumping it to pay for electricity. And, and saving a bit for mar you know margin or whatever, but um, the, you know that 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 kind of situation that he you touched on in episode uh, uh, fourteen was uh, was that uh, you know what happens when there's there's no more to buy that almost kind of happened in this run where you know it was getting up near you know twelve thousand eleven thousand and there was there was just no upward. Buy, uh, there's no, there was no, uh, what do you call it? Sell walls, right? There was no, it would, it if 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 a significant more amount of capital came in in the last, uh, you know, in the last week or whatever, then the price would have shot up because there was no, there was, there was no pressure, essentially, and and that situation can happen very very quickly with a scarce asset, and all of this, all of this should be considered in the context of the having schedule, which is coming up next year, so. We're trying to lay this foundation of the macro environment where these governments are all kind of over leveraged and uh, we haven't even mentioned the negative interest rates yet. And uh, so everybody's got these giant asset bubbles um, 
there's a lot of debt, which means they're they're leveraged, right? Uh, you know, there's talk of zombie economies and uh, zombie businesses and zombie houses, <laughs> even. Um, and so, so there is this air of desperation. Uh, I think. Um, I don't know. You want to jump off that, Colin? Well, one last thing I could say on the liquidity piece. You and I shared that tweet uh, by the guy. I just looked up his name because I wanted to credit him. A.V. Fellman, um, who was looking at the, the liquidity on the order books. Yeah. And I don't know exactly where he was looking. I think he was looking at Coinbase. But he said only all it would take to move us from our price point of like 12000 at the time, uh, past beyond all-time highs, is a $27 million market buy. And... Guys, that's not very much money. I mean, I mean, that's a lot of money to people like me. But in in the grand scheme of things, that is not very much buying pressure. And if you think about the amount of buying pressure it probably took to move us to all time highs in in two thousand sixteen, two thousand seventeen. Twenty seven million dollars is all it would take to push us past all time highs. And then what happens, right? I mean, that's insanity. We're talking about something that could happen in like an hour. People don't realize, I understand there's a lot of focus, and, and Ben and I were talking about this before, there's a lot of focus on the TA and on price analysis in the space, which is so foolish and such a big waste of your time, because this thing, you know, people, you hear people say, like, oh, it went up too fast, it has to come back down, it can't go up this fast, nothing can go up this fast. You guys don't get it. If you think that, if you believe that, if you're thinking that way, you need to abandon, you know, like Ben was saying earlier, he had to push all the price analysis to the side when he was first getting into Bitcoin to find the valuable information. You guys are not going to understand Bitcoin by looking at the price and you're not going to understand Bitcoin by looking at charts. Yeah, this is this is a new paradigm, I think. And it's something we touched on last time too, but this the the world's paradigm of of money is changing because this this is a digital commodity that's being monetized in real time. And I, I have a tweet thread about that. Like, what would it, you know, just hypothetically, what would it look like if this digital commodity, this first uh, ever scarce digital commodity was being monetized in real time? What would it look like? And uh, I think it would kind of look like a little bit like what's happening where financial institutions like Fidelity and uh, and uh, Bact are, are popping up and, and all this stuff. And uh, just just to touch one more time on that tweet that you were talking about, uh, where $27 million, I think you said, would move the, the price up to all-time high. At the same time, that same $27 million in selling pressure would have only like moved it back uh, $2,000. So that, that, that was what we were talking about, about the liquidity drying up on the upward, um, and that, that people are still willing to buy on the sell side. Uh, and, and if you spend all your time looking at the charts, you lose track of the forest for the trees because what does that mean you know, in, practic in practicality? Well, that means everyone wants to buy and there aren't that many people that want to sell. When I, like, when I look at that data, data, that's the useful part that I can glean out of that is lots of people are here ready to buy more Bitcoin. And you hear the mantra, you know, they were talking about this on that live episode of TFTC uh, earlier this week. You hear the mantra, everyone's like, I thought we had more time. I thought we could get more Bitcoin. Like I thought everyone was saying like nobody expected this thing to move like it did. And people, you know, you go to like our butt coin and they're just talking about how it's manipulation. Obviously this isn't real. Clearly nobody really wants this thing. It's just a bunch of crazy people in their mom's basements. Nobody can predict what's happening right now. Like it, it is emerging spontaneously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
follow uh, at BTC Seminar. I think it's Bill Burden who uh, who says, you know, hodl on com- comrades. And, and what what does this meme of hodl really mean? Uh, it means that if this is not a stock, if it's not, you know, some some equity or something that we're or, – or, or even an asset or whatever that we're trying to store our value in, if it's really a commodity that's being monetized in real time, then – then we are still early, and the value of Bitcoin is is uh is is severely underpriced, as you hear many people say that the value of Bitcoin might be you know the entire world's store of value uh wealth, and and that's an that's an enormous number, and and maybe that is uh is a little crazy, but I think we're in a pretty crazy time right now. You know, fiat currencies are. They have failed many times, and uh, it's it's possible they'll fail in the next twenty or thirty years again. Uh, it, it sounds insane to me. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's very intelligent, very outside of the box thinker. Uh, he was saying something along the lines of, "Yeah, but you don't understand, like you know, how big the U.S. dollar is." And I, I you know, I I have a much better idea of that now, how big it is. And I I turned to him and I said, "Well, what happens if uh, if demand for the U.S. dollar dries up?" And and I've seen headlines like uh, that Russia and and China are 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 thinking about de-dollarizing, right? So because they hold our dollars in reserve, you know, they they hold our money that we're devaluing. So the U.S. government is actually stealing some of that wealth by printing more. So that you know they kind of all these countries understand this game. It's all a big game, and and part of it is they're trying to hedge some stability, right? This. <laughs> quote unquote stability mm-hmm. uh everybody wants stability but everyone wants returns because all the money is evaporating this this need for returns this need to beat inflation is is an interesting paradigm itself and if there's a hard money that that is shared globally then we kind of reduce the need for that and that's why we think that bitcoin may absorb some of the store value wealth that we see in in real estate and in art uh, there was a great thread about that. Uh, I don't know if I shared that with you, Colin. So, uh, I'd have to find it. I think it's... Oh, yeah. It was uh, Spencer Bogart. Um, it was a a letter that was written to the SEC uh, examining Bitcoin's value attributes. And this is some of the stuff we talked about before, but like... Uh, Gold, nine trillion. High-end art and collectibles, four trillion. Real estate, one hundred and seventy-five trillion. And and what do I mean by that? You know, we're talking about money. This is real. Real estate is like a store of value for wealthy people because it's a scarce resource. You know, and uh, because our money devalues, people will actually take their you know their U.S. dollars that they earn and they'll they'll buy a house and then the, or or a business property, right? That that's a it's a huge commercial um, bubble that Jesse Colombo is talking about is the commercial real estate bubble. We're 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 in the bubble, <laughs> the bubble era, folks. The uh, the everything bubble, as as he mentions. So I don't know. That was a bit of a rant. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we've gotten off the the topic here. What you know? What what do these governments do? There's the the Maraud conjecture that you know the first government that really decides to buy a bunch of Bitcoin wins the game. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first mover advantage. Well, and and you had kind of touched on the the debt piece and um, the the federal fund rate and um, you know you you said what happens if demand for the dollar dries up, right? 
And I would caveat that with what happens if demand for the dollar dries up amidst the need for QE, the need for NERP, right? Because we're looking at this situation where the macroeconomic landscape, I mean, these things go in cycles. They always do. It's a boom and bust cycle. It's, it's historically the way Keynesian economic, sorry, I know you hate it when I say Keynesian, <laughs> Keynesian economics yep. has always worked. It's a boom and bust cycle, right? And, and it doesn't take a genius to see that we're at the top of a boom. And historically, what's always followed a boom is a bust, right? And, and they, get, they get progressively more extreme each time they happen. And the last one was pretty bad. It shook the world, right? So what's coming next? And, and we're in this position where central banks and governments have so little leverage to deal with the coming crisis Interest rates are already so low. Debt is already so high. Like, costs of servicing these loans is already huge. What happens when demand for the dollar dries up amidst NERP and QE? Something the world has never seen. I can certainly say that. We've seen smaller instances of negative yielding loans. We've seen smaller instances of massive QE and the effects that it's had on smaller economies. We've never seen something like this play out at the global level, like it will with the dollar. Yeah. Um, there's a, maybe we can link it in the show notes. There's an amazing video. I think it's by Ray Dalio, but it, it is, <laughs> it's quite interesting. It's called like uh, how the economic machine works. And he goes over, he goes over the boom and bust cycles too. Um, but he, he goes over, oh, I can't remember what I was going to say on this. It's, it, oh, he talks about deleveraging um, and how, you know the Keynesian model understands that these cycles, where you expand the money supply, and and then eventually you do have to contract that money supply, and 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 in doing that, uh, there are winners and losers for sure. The people that bought equities at the bottom of the cycle and then sell equities before the you know before it falls again, um, and and I think that's kind of what we're seeing. But oh yes, he talks about the levers, right? So the governments have these different levers because they control the supply of money, uh, among other things. Uh, and I feel like what what Colin was, was hinting at there is that they've kind of pulled all the levers now. So we're at you know we, I keep talking about we're at the top of this very large bull run in, in the equities market, and uh, they are talking about reducing the federal funds rate. They're they're talking about which which would mean expanding the money supply even more. And uh, if you look to Europe, you know Europe has these negative interest rates that are starting to become more and more prominent. Which means they're actually paying people to borrow money. People aren't borrowing money fast enough, and inflation isn't happening fast enough, according to them. There's not enough inflation, and I think it's really interesting because I feel like if you look at kind of these major countries in the world. You can kind of see different, you know, if, if we're talking about the, these 10-year, you know, 15-year market cycles, I feel like there's a much larger <laughs> uh, kind of meta cycle of a Keynesian uh, nation state where, you know, it, it, Japan is kind of the farthest ahead. They went the farthest with this, and, and we, we mentioned this briefly as well, about that uh, Japan's government owns, like, 50% of, you know, the top whatever countries that they they've actually bought the equities, the central bank and mm -hmm. uh that they, they have what what they call a zombie economy. They've actually had deflation recently, much to the uh central bank's dismay. Uh they 
they aren't really seeing any growth at all, and they're just kind of propping everything up. So that's kind of like possibly the the zombie future if you keep going down this path. And then you look at like Europe with the negative interest rates; they're almost like a little bit ahead of us, where they, you know, if our government has run out of levers to pull, they they're already <laughs> they're already like capitulating, where they're like paying people to borrow money, and and that's. I mean, I don't think you have to be really into the finance world to understand why that's a weird thing. It doesn't make any sense, right? It's so, it's it's so nonsensical. It's like it's like the Ouroboros of finance. Right? The what? The Ouroboros, the snake that eats its own tail. <laughs> Imagine if someone invented a food that, as you ate it, it tasted delicious, right? But as you ate it, it made you more hungry. Yeah, it's uh. It has the chance to kind of run away, and one of the ways it could run away is what Pierre Richard has speculated on, called the speculative attack. Uh, are you familiar with that article, Colin? Yeah, I, yeah, I love that. It's a uh, kind of crazy. So if the government is allowing people to borrow money at near zero percent interest rates, or even worse, paying them to borrow money, what if people borrowed money and bought Bitcoin with it? Uh, because Bitcoin's money supply can't be inflated. Well, you theoretically, if this happens on a really large scale, the you could hyperinflate the currency almost overnight. And I, and, and, and I don't even think it has to happen on a large scale. No. It, it, because the world that we live in is so out of touch with reality. This idea that's being proposed and normalized is so nonsensical. And there's no outrage. There's no uproar, apart from like this select group of people who most of whom are already bitcoiners or gold bugs that are just kind of hunkering down saying okay this is crazy the bullish sentiment's higher than it's ever been i mean maybe not higher than it's ever been but it's at one of its highs right i mean the yeah. people that don't pay attention to this on a day-to-day -day basis they're like yeah go all in on the market right now now is a great time to buy you know it, this is it like we're we're moving up moving forward um even if like this this zombie economy keeps moving forward, it won't take that because we talked about before like the liquidity of this thing. It doesn't take that much to move it a lot. And if that debt is there, or if that credit is there and it's available, it's not going to take fifty percent of the U.S. population mortgaging their house to buy Bitcoin. It's it's going to take a very very small fraction of that hundred and seventy five trillion dollar real estate market to move the needle substantially fast. Like faster, like faster than your brain can comprehend. That's very interesting. Um, and and you know, you commented on why why people are kind of this way. And I, you know, I think it really goes back to I think it's Brady from Citizen Bitcoin who always says we're all default Keynesians. This is the tyranny of the status quo, meaning that just the way things are are the way things are. So. Yeah, the government will just keep propping up the markets. Don't worry, the government will save us. This is just how it is. The government controls money. That's just how it is, you know. Uh, there's a there's a great quote. Um, I can't remember which Austrian economist it is right at this moment, but it's uh, that you know most economists generally proponents of the free market stop short at money. Money they insist must be managed by the government uh, and supplied by the government, so that essentially it's it's criticizing this idea of government run money why everything else should be a free market except money itself and uh that's the tyranny of the status quo people people are kind of uh 
just locked into how things are. And, you know, if you start talking about Bitcoin, well, you look like Charlie Day from, uh, from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, like a crazy person with a, bar a chart behind you, because you're like, well, that's that's insane. How could money be controlled by computers and algorithms and stuff? And uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, we've seen like a lot of times these fiat currencies, as they run their course, um, there's an inevitable reset, right? Yes, they can keep this going theoretically forever, but eventually there has to be some sort of reset. There either has to be some hyperinflation and the government has to round itself back up and, and maybe there's some sort of coup or power struggle that takes place and then things pick up right back where they left off, but they start again from zero. Or uh, the government hacks a few zeros off the ends of their currency, you know, and just totally wipes out the wealth of all of its people that don't hold assets. Yeah, they're um, also debt jubilees. Right, right. There has to be some sort of reset. What does a global reset look like? And what does it look like with, in a world where Bitcoin exists? Because this is how we have to start framing the way we look at these things. Because anytime it's ever happened historically, Bitcoin either didn't exist or it was so young that it maybe might not have even been relevant yet in this discussion. And if you know your monetary history, you might be saying, well, Colin, what about gold? Gold has always existed and that's had a you know, a pretty stable stock over these times. But the the problem with gold is the centralization in vaults problem and the, the paper problem, meaning that most people don't actually hold gold, even the people that own it. Like Peter Schiff, he has a company that holds it for you. And sure, you can get physical delivery of your gold, and that's great. And then you could, what, what do you, wait, hold on a second. You So you have a giant block of gold and you want to go buy something with it well you have to like shave little pieces off of it and send them in the mail over i mean it doesn't work as money in the global you know modern context that we're transacting with people all over the world in very small amounts and very quickly you can't do that with gold oh what if we could create paper certificates to use as stand-ins for the gold so essentially what i'm trying to say is that because people don't hold the gold themselves and transact with it directly that it, it allows them the opportunity to make more paper gold and manipulate the supply in, in different ways, and uh, it, it is very centralized in its control. Uh, you know, most of the gold is held by the central banks and stuff. So, the paradigm of the Bitcoin world is that well, people hold their own Bitcoin and they verify it personally, and and they're trading it directly, and uh, that changes the paradigm. It it really does. This, this is the paradigm of a world with Bitcoin. In the year 2019, gold has failed as money. <laughs> exactly. Gold failed it, as money, like, hard. Go and, and gold was a giant for, for centuries, millennia. But gold failed as money. Because of advances in technology, gold, was, gold has become outdated money. It, it, it died. And there are people that still hold on to it. And that is what it is. I think most of you guys already know how I feel about that. Gold died as a money. Gold is not a sound money. Gold cannot function as sound money. And in 2019, it is impossible for gold to ever be money again. It has already been demonetized. There are people that cling to it as a store of value, but gold cannot be money in a digital world. I mean, people use Picassos as store of value. People use real estate as store of value and so do they, they use equities that doesn't make those things monies either it means they have monetary properties and monetary use but 
they're not monies themselves. Monies are held by people and exchanged for goods and services. And and paid for goods and services. You receive your salary in money. You don't receive your salary in gold or equities. Well, some people receive their salary in equities uh, or portions of it. Um, but you don't receive your, your salary in Picassos or, or houses, right? It, it is... If, if Bitcoin is a proto-money, well, then gold is a post-money. It is losing its monetary use, I think. And the reason it's doing that is because a uh, fiat took over much yeah. much by force um but but well, also necessity right like we we needed a paper scaling solution for for gold well so, and yeah sorry go ahead i it's this this conjecture i have that that it, it actually makes perfect sense why we are where we are what you know why we started using collectibles and then we you know eventually kind of honed in on hard assets like uh gold and silver and then gold won out over silver um second layer gold won out over first layer silver right. uh because liquidity is king and and i i think fiat was a was a nasty trick when they they it was a bait and switch where they were like well what if we can just convince them all to use paper instead and then we can print as much as we want and and Bitcoin you bring is up a great point bring back to reality yeah you bring up a great point bitcoin is not trying to beat gold gold already lost to paper <laughs> yeah gold lost 100 years ago and bitcoin's a 10x improvement on on fiat and gold put together i would argue 100x. I mean, maybe it's even might even be infinitesimally calculable. Right now, it's a 10x improvement. In five or ten years, when 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 Bitcoin matures, when the tools, when when it as a it's it's a phenomenon too. It's not just something that you hold and transfer. It's has changed the way we think about how money can be transferred in the first place. It it is infinitely divisible infinitely programmable it is uh it will be easier to secure i i don't think it's quite as easy to secure as 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 people would want right now people want the uh the stupid button they want the right, the, the bank right. to hold it for them of course and I, and and we can't even really do anything about that but you know i i there's an absurdity of the the situation that we're in right now that this it's absolute hilarity when you look at guys like peter schiff right who are arguing that oh bitcoin can't replace gold that's like living in 2019 and saying that the airplane can't replace the horse carriage gold already lost this fight 100 years ago gold lost this fight it got replaced by a better technology, which arguably had negative consequences, but it was a better technology because that's what people started using as money. That's just the way it works. You know, we're not here even advocating for anything, even though we both think Bitcoin is better than paper. We're just seeing the transition in technology happen before our eyes. It, 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 it's absolute... It's absolutely out of touch with reality to sit there and argue with a gold bug that Bitcoin is better money than gold. Because Bitcoin isn't trying to beat gold. It's trying to beat central banking. And so, uh, it, I, I, I think it's hilarious that Peter Schiff spends so much time talking about Bitcoin. I, me thinks he does pro protest too much. <laughs> yeah, you got to wonder about that guy. Um, but let's bring it back to... We, we've, we've laid our framework, right? Now, here we are in this macroeconomic landscape. We have these nation states. 
we can exclude the, you know and and maybe maybe it will be one of the smaller countries that adopts this thing first and rockets into the forefront of the global landscape as a new leader it's very possible those types of things have happened in the past i mean look at america america came out of nowhere right and just right. suddenly emerged as a new world superpower um less than 200 years after its founding what happens at the nation state level where, where you know you have these very smart people because right? if guys if we understand this like me and ben and, and you guys that are listening if, if we can look at this and understand this there are people out there you know that work for these governments that understand this that see this coming they might not be the presidents they might not be the politicians they might not even be the bureaucrats but there are people there behind the scenes and they get this stuff what is the winning move Right, because it's like Ben said, this liquidity problem that you have with Bitcoin, where it's already, you know, it's only 2019. We've only had two halvings. We have one coming up in a, in less than a year. This liquidity problem is already there. What do they do? What is the winning move? Now, I mean, maybe we should start with China. I mean, because that piece on China that China State News Agency put out, I found tremendously interesting and more interesting than Libra, which everyone was talking about nonstop. No one's talking about. A Chinese Communist Party state-sponsored news agency talking about Bitcoin being a safe haven asset. Yeah, uh, I I think I mean that blew my mind when you sent that to me. Uh, the state-sponsored news agency is saying Bitcoin could be a safe haven asset, and, and what's their incentive gain there? Well, China has leveraged three hundred percent to GDP. They owe a lot of money, so if they're looking for a way out of that. I mean, the way out of that normally is to inflate your money to just make the debt disappear, to make it just evaporate slowly. So if they bought some Bitcoin, just hypothetically speaking here, uh, and they inflated their own currency, but they held the Bitcoin that it's inflating against, then they could come out on top. Um also, when you were talking about the smaller countries, I think that's really interesting. We talk about Bitcoin as an asymmetric bet, where, you know, Colin and I are like, oh, yeah, the thing could go to zero. You know, there could be a massive bug, you know, next year, or maybe the U.S. bans it or something crazy happens. But it's an asymmetric bet. You know, if I toss, you know, 100 bucks into this thing and it, quote, goes to the moon, well, then I, I could gain a, a very large percentage. It's like a lottery ticket, right? It's, I mean, this is really all gambling on, on what could happen. But a smaller nation, well, it's almost like they have less to lose, and they don't have this, they have less of this liquidity problem. If the U.S. government is trying to buy a significant percentage of their D GDP's worth of, of Bitcoin, well, they're going to pump the price when they do it. And by the time they've finished buying how much they want, they're going to pay 10 times the price for those last few coins. A smaller nation could get away with kind of, you know, chucking a few dollars and stacking some sats uh, a little bit more easily, a little bit more um, under the radar. Right. And and if and, and then let's say they do that. Let's say they've already done that. Right. Like, let's say that Malta has been acquiring Bitcoins for the last half a decade. Mm -hmm. Right. And let's say they've got a they've got a decent little chunk going. And now China comes in. United States comes in or the EU comes in and they say, all right, we're going to start buying up Bitcoin. And they do. Now, who's the real winner here? Is it the people who were already in the market already established? Or is it the people that are dumping tremendous amounts of capital into this market that's soon to experience a supply shock and is going to have massive slippage on the way up? 
Yep, that's the Murad argument. <laughs> Multiple would win in that scenario. Yeah, um, there's there's a there's a um, a huge early mover advantage in this market, not just for us, but you know all the way up to the nation state level. Yeah, and and Colin, I think correctly identified also to me um, that you know they these governments could already have been doing this. Uh, many governments could already have been doing this. Russia has even supposedly said that they are buying bitcoin um some of these governments are thinking about issuing their own shit coins uh and uh, i also I, I i do think one of the better ways for these governments to acquire some would be let's mine some because then not only does nobody know you bought it um nobody knows you have it right because the the wallets mm-hmm. are generated so the, these are clean bitcoins um it is the most clandestine way to acquire some Bitcoin. And and China, by the way, has a lot of miners, and, and they're communists, so they can easily seize those miners. So they could be already doing this. Um, we don't really know. There's no slippage from stealing Bitcoins. There's no slippage from stealing them. There's no slippage from mining them. There's already precedent set in the United States, you know, for for seizure of, of your property. Like, if you're traveling across state lines and you have... a suitcase in the back of your car with fifty thousand dollars in it the police can take it just based on the fact that they're not sure what you're going to do with it and now you're probably involved in drugs if you're carrying that much cash chances are you're doing something illegal we're just going to go ahead and take that and hold on to that for you what if this i have is... a brain wallet colin can they still <laughs> take that yeah well i there i think that there are problems with brain wallets um yeah probably for a different discussion uh <laughs> but i think that they're a useful tool but i question the you know because if if Somebody knows you own Bitcoin and you say, ah, oh, I'm smarter than you. I have my Bitcoin in my brain. Well, they can hit you with a wrench hard enough that you forget all the words, right? I mean, sure. Or, or, or later, hit you until you tell them what they are. <laughs> right. Well, even if you hold out indefinitely. Right. You know, so great. You won. Now you're dead or now you're in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. Um, and you can't remember those words anymore because you can't even feed yourself. I still think the custody problem is, is something we need to solve to get to the 100x improvement on gold. Um, there's so many businesses that are popping up around just holding a Bitcoin, including Fidelity. And they're uh, all backed, really bad. Gemini. Their uh, security models are really bad. It's it's not a solved problem yet, I don't think. I, I think there's a lot of interesting types of solutions. These uh, multi-sig solutions, Casa Holdel, Unchained Capital. Um, I don't think it's a 100% solved problem yet. Absolutely not. And, and one of the reasons why, um, and, and JW talks about this all the time, and he took so much flack for this. And nobody wants to talk about it because uh, a lot of the people in this space are, are intellectually or financially compromised because they don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. Totally get it. I totally understand it. But I am fortunate enough to be in the position where I'm not financially obligated to any of these organizations that are marketing and shilling their security solutions. If, if you're a government, right, and you're trying to come get my Bitcoin, because you have to assume in these scenarios, when it comes to security, you want to assume that the most powerful entity possible is coming after you and your Bitcoins. Where's the first thinking. place? What's the first place you're going to subpoena for keys? It, it's, it's going to be the businesses that are designed to hold keys for people. Mm. And, and that's why you need these multi-sig setups where they can't get at it without you. 
but even with the multi-sig, right? Like, let's say the government knows you have a multi-sig or they find it out by, by seizing your keys. That's just one more key that they can get by simply subpoena, subpoenaing mm-hmm. a, a company whose sole purpose, sole existence is to manage keys for people. Yep. And yeah, they might know, well, it's only going to be a 105 or a, or a 103 or whatever. Um, now they now they move down the list. All right, well let's go to their relative's house. All right, well let's uh let's raid their local business. You know, it, but stop number one is going to be these custody services mm-hmm. for for people that want to store their Bitcoin. What what does the U.S. do in order to either fight or win this game? You know, there's the. Uh... <laughs> This is that quote from I think it's from War Games or something. That's the the only winning move is not to play. But right, I don't think right. that's the case here. I think well, that's so what they were trying to do. Michael Goldstein's play on that was the only winning move is to play. Yeah. Um now I would say that the US has the most to lose. Yes. From Bitcoinization. They have this hegemony, this uh seniorage ability to steal from the whole world that holds the US dollar. And they're, they certainly stand to lose some of that ability. But uh, what, what did you mean specifically? What do you mean? What does the, gov- what does the U.S. have to lose? Or is that what you're talking about? The, yeah, they have, the, they have that seniorage to lose. So they, there's a certain amount of resistance anytime. If the status quo is good for me and you, what are we going to put more energy into? Preserving the status quo or trying to uh, shift to a new paradigm? What if they can profit off of it? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you and I have talked before about the inefficiencies of bureaucracies and, and how they don't tend to function as cohesive machines so much as individual parts and pieces that are working towards their own ends. Um, right. I have to wonder you know, if, if, if our bureaucratic system is fluid enough to be able to actually make that transition before it's too late. Yeah. Uh, and... I think uh, the 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 government is you know comprised of these individuals, um, and and they're probably the conspiracy theorists among us saying, well, I'm sure that there's somebody pulling the strings, one of these really wealthy people, and that may be true too. But it, I, I like the way that you said it. Are they liquid enough to to be able to react and 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 cohesive enough, right? Can they can they all work together? And there's this idea that individual politicians are incentivized to hold Bitcoin and profit off of it that way. And it, what's what's really crazy is I think this idea of the US government banning it. Because I mean, certainly it's possible. I'm I'm not saying that at all, but the more of these businesses that come up and and the more it becomes integrated into the society and if you look at the metrics it, it that's a that's an upward curve you know it's a, on a especially on a logarithmic scale you just see it growing and growing in every single metric um that how how can they un, untwine it from the economy itself if, if fidelity and uh and jp morgan and, and and microsoft is building on it and and backed and all, all these businesses are, are slowly integrating it the more that that happens the harder it is to do is just outright ban the thing i don't know it, it'd be different if we were talking about like alcohol or um 
or marijuana or like a like a commodity right that people want and use and consume uh buy and sell and trade we're talking about something so much more integral so much more pervasive so much more um immortal like it's it's this digital distributed public ledger and the thing is they know that they can't destroy the thing without destroying all confidence in it because it is run by people so they would have to make people stop using it worldwide so if the u.s bans bitcoin well all it does is move it to other places and if the u.s understands it like we do which colin conjectured that they do uh then they know that it's not going away and that it may continue to prove itself as a good store of value. So it's that them banning it would just push the people that benefit from it to other countries. So it's not necessarily a winning move for them. Is this a checkmate? <laughs> I, I don't know, man. It's so crazy. It, it's such a weird time for Bitcoin to be here. I mean, if it was in the 70s or the 80s, the U.S. had all sorts of levers to pull left. And they, they're all, all these massive governments are running out of letters. They're all leveraged up to their knees. Their uh, debt payments are looking to eclipse their entire budgets. They, they all don't have, quote, enough inflation. They're, they're trying to force people to borrow money by, by, by paying them to do so. It's such a crazy time. We're at the, this large, large asset bubble inflation, which has to come down eventually. The longer they delay that, the worse it's going to be. I don't know, man. What a time to be alive. Um, so, yeah, I, this was something that I was talking about with Ben, and I forgot to quote it during the last time him and I got together, but it was something that uh, Lionel Robbins said. Uh, he went so far as to attribute the extraordinary depth and length of the Great Depression to excessive expansionary monetary policy. He wrote that the moment the boom broke, central banks of the world set to create a condition of easy money. The process of liquidation was arrested, and this was a mistake. Uh, in a boom, many bad businesses commitments are undertaken goods are produced which are impossible to sell at a profit loans are made which are impossible to recover and when the boom breaks these commitments are revealed nobody wishes bankruptcies nobody likes liquidations as such but when the extent of but when the extent of malinvestment and overindebtedness has passed a certain limit measures which postpone liquidation only make matters worse yes and it's i mean if only there were signs of that like the unicorns and decacorns that show no profit and have billions and tens and billions of valuations, you know, the, the, this idea of these zombie companies that, you know, were it not for ledger, le, uh, if it not, were not for, I, I think I said leverage, but uh, debt, they wouldn't be able to continue functioning. That is what scares me the most, is when that stuff could possibly come down, could, could come down hard. Um, I don't know, man. <laughs> so, all right, we, we don't know what the U.S. is going to do. We don't know what they can do. What about some of these other nations, like some of the more, uh, what, what about Russia? What about China? What about Palestine? What about Iran? What about Israel? What about the EU? What's their winning move? 
Uh, I don't think there's a way to move for the EU. <laughs> the EU is the, uh, in my mind, it's the uh, the idea of this global government that they're trying to take over everything, and they they're they're hurting all of the member states in order to enrich themselves. But uh, that that might be just kind of a conspiracy thing. I, I, the the EU is this this whole Brexit thing is is very confusing to me, and I don't I don't know enough about it. But I think it's it's really important. You know, uh, th there's the euro, and then there's the the Great British Pound, and I I think that that has part to do with it because I because I, mm -hmm. I, I I honestly think that this follow the money thing is really interesting. This this international money wars where, as Andreas puts it, you know, if my money wins, yours loses. Uh, is really interesting kind of lens to view these things in. Well, I, an interesting thing about the the euro, uh, and I had this explained to me, is that it benefits Germany most of all. Well, first of all, the the smaller, completely broke nations in the EU, and and guys, I'm I don't live in Europe, and I'm not super fluent in European politics. This is sort of uh, my hearsay take on this. Um, the the Germany is primarily an export economy, right? They have uh, strong manufacturing economy uh so it benefits them to have the the euro uh and have their their be able to export their uh commodities and their manufactured commodities in, in the in the euro because there's all these other nations that are a part of the eu that are broke as a joke right you look at like greece you look at spain um they drag the value of the euro down and it makes it, it, it benefits Germany by being able to export their goods uh, via a weaker currency than they would have if it was in like a German mark. Uh, Germany and UK are the only two countries that keep the EU economy afloat because they're the only ones that aren't completely broke and then actually create anything. Fascinating. Um, I think Russia is really interesting because they're kind of like the loose cannon. Uh, they... I, I believe that they are buying a lot of gold. What if, what if they bought a bunch of gold and then dumped all the gold for, <laughs> for Bitcoin at some Dump point? Dump it on Peter Schiff. <laughs> yeah, and on the U.S. government because they hold the most gold, right? Everybody's vying for themselves. Somebody's uh, going to be left holding the gold bag. Right. I agree. China, I, I, I think we've already kind of conjectured that, that they must be acquiring some. I, it, it's weird to me that the central banks, should central banks acquire Bitcoin? I've, I've heard a central banker talk about this. I think it was on Crypto Voices, or, or maybe it was uh, George Guido Holzman on Stefan Levera. I can't remember. But, you know, should central banks acquire Bitcoin? Well, Maybe, but maybe not. The whole idea of a central bank is this lender of last resort right. that creates money out of nothing. And and then buying it, well, what are they doing? Just to hold on to it in case shit goes bad and then they can right. bail somebody out? I, right. I, the, I don't know. The entire idea of central banks holding assets doesn't make any sense to begin with because they just print the money out of thin air anyway. Who cares how much they have in reserve? <laughs> well, there's a limit to how much you can print, and that limit is generally inflation, right? Right, right. Uh, something that uh, Bitcoin Tina kind of made me realize is like, you know, he's like, why, why are you looking at their balance sheets? Who cares? Like, it, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't make any difference, like, how much of this they have, how much of that they have. It doesn't matter. They're still going to do what they're going to do. 
Yeah, now, she, granted, it dry, it has certain economic implications, like with the amount of capital that they have uh, to acquire certain things. And you can see it's moving the gold market now. Um, gold is, is peaking right now. But at the end of the day, you know, it, they're still the ones that are pulling the, pulling the levers, so to speak. Is them acquiring Bitcoin, does it change anything for them? I don't know that it does. Well, if they get in early, it does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about uh, like a kind of a global hyperinflationary collapse? Is that a, a real possibility that should be worried about, or do you think it would be more of a gradual thing? I I think I know that there are a lot of people that uh, aren't convinced about that. I think there's a non-zero chance. Um, the stage is set of whether or not it actually happens. I certainly hope it doesn't, because a lot hey. of people are gonna a lot of people are gonna die. A mad, mad dash for bitcoins, so to speak, worldwide, where everybody wants them and nobody wants to sell them. I just get the feeling that if there is like a hyperinflationary collapse, um, Bitcoin isn't going to save you. It might be really, really great in 50 years if we come out of the other end of that. Uh, I just don't know. I just don't know. I don't know what that transition would look like. I tend to be a little bit more cynical when it comes to massive um, shifts in power dynamics. Historically speaking, if you look at them, they're usually accompanied with a lot of violence. Mm -hmm. You can see that in Venezuela right now. Yeah, that and it, which is a hyperinflationary environment, which I, I think is kind of relevant. But there's you know shifts of power where they're trying to get. Maduro out of office, and there's they're trying to get their gold from Europe, and they're trying to get it sent overseas, and uh, I, not that that's necessarily the best framework to use, but it's the closest thing I can think of in modern history where the currency is inflating. Bitcoin exists. Uh, some of the citizens are using it. Um, it's possible that Venezuela is acquiring some. I, I, and maybe the Bitcoin Citadel prediction from the time traveler on Reddit is going to come true. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, I think that's a nice fantasy, but um, some of the stuff in there does seem relatively, uh, relatively plausible. Yeah, I agree. And, and people don't like to talk about this stuff because it's depressing. Like, nobody wants to think, you know, before Bitcoin exists... And, and Ben has talked with me about this before, too. Before we found Bitcoin, like, we were just eternal pessimists about the state of the world because we're still seeing all the same things, and it's just getting worse year after year after year. And, yeah, Bitcoin is a great solution, um, but, but what happens to the amidst the fallout? You know, I, I hope that my Bitcoin can help facilitate this peaceful, smooth transition into a world of sound money, um, but the reality is that... Power shifts often don't happen like that. In fact, I don't know of a single historical example where such a large transition of power and wealth transfer has happened peacefully. Well, I, th I think one of the interesting things about, you know, at least my conjecture, and, and this is my trying to be optimistic to play a devil's advocate to you, is that if there's a shift in power, I think the shift is going towards the people, not towards other large centralized sources. The, the mm. shift in power is the power for people to hold their own wealth and store their own wealth and, and not have to gamble on the stock market in order to do that. I think sound money will, will bring prosperity to civilizations. 
just by discouraging malinvestment and, and some of these things we've already been talking about. So if the shift in power is away from large tyrannical governments that that interfere with the you know free exchange of people, that could be a good thing. I just you're right. When it happens quickly, it it can get a little scary. So since we're not sure what the winning move is here, uh, does that mean we're going to see a potential breakdown of the geopolitical unit? I mean, is it going to become obsolete just because it, it, it can't compete? I don't see governments disappearing altogether, um, but I do see them having less power, uh, less power to print money and prop up their, their malinvestments and their wars. Uh, I... I I think in I don't know. I mean the the whole libertarian anarcho-capitalist vision is, is is a pretty crazy thing too. But uh, who knows? It's never really been tried in modern history that I'm aware of. <laughs> so uh, maybe anything's possible. I've I've been trying to reevaluate everything since I've learned about Bitcoin and I've always been trying to take a kind of a 10,000 view of of the world and it's uh it's a lot harder to do than just accepting the tyranny of the status quo, I'll tell you that. So, uh, hmm. nobody knows. So, is is that where we're is that where we're at? We just don't know what the answer is. The only winning move is to play first mover advantage. If we were writing a letter to the White House right now, what would it be? Like stack sats? <laughs> <laughs> stay humble. Stack sats, stay humble. Is that our advice to Mr. Donald Trump? Yeah, we got to get Matt Odell in the White House, man. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think we should round up all the uh the most intelligent bitcoiners and have them help us write that letter, you know. Yeah. P- Purishard was just on TV talking about bitcoin intelligently. There there haven't been enough really intelligent bitcoiners that have actually done the research talking to the people of this world yet. Yeah. So uh, I agree. I I think Instead, we need to we... have more of that conversation. Instead we get the guys living in tree houses and stuff like that. Right? <laughs> yeah. And Peter Schiff. So. Right, and Peter Schiff. Well, you know, I think that that's slowly starting to change. You know, you've seen Pomp has been on CNBC a few times, and as much as people don't like Pomp, you know, you could argue he, he's a really good advocate for Bitcoin uh, in the mainstream. Uh, the guy loves Bitcoin. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, now you've got guys like Novogratz coming out. It's like, <laughs> how can you go from... Bitcoin is the only place that can make you a hero and a villain in the same sentence. Yeah, wow. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. So perspective is important, uh, and uh, we all have different perspectives. So let's let's keep having this conversation. You know. Yeah. Keep educating people. Um, you know, and th- this is where the magic is happening right here, guys. I mean, the the Bitcoin space has really matured in this last bear market. It has a lot of great things have emerged. A lot of people building a lot of really cool stuff. A lot of the the education is starting to sort of flesh itself out and become more mature. Uh, it, it's really good. You know, share this stuff with people. Uh, get these conversations going. You know, we, we need to get this conversation going in every household in America, every household in, in China, all over the world. People need to be talking about these things. Yeah, even if Bitcoin goes to zero, the conversation that we're having is still extremely important about evaluating what, what our world looks like now, what it really looks like, what, it, what the implications of that really are, and what the implications of a digital sound money is, too. <laughs> I don't think that's 
being talked about enough, at least not in that context. So glad to be part of the conversation. So thanks, thanks for having me, Colin. I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, you you got anything else you want to touch on before we wrap this up? Um, learn about the history of money. <laughs> history of money. Any good sources you recommend? Uh, Nick Szabo, Shelling Out. That's a great. That's great. And also the crypto economy guy. Uh, he has done voiceovers for that. Mm-hmm. So you can listen so, to it too. Yeah. Uh, what has government done to our money? That's a good one. That's a good one too. It's a short, um, short read. It's only like fifty pages or something. Yeah, yeah. And I always recommend the creature from Jekyll Island. I love that book. Fantastic book. It's very easy to read. You can be a layman and get a pretty thorough understanding of how the money system works if you read the creature from Jekyll Island. You don't have to have a background in economics. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of gatekeeping um, in the economic world where, and in finance too, where there's just like a lot of jargon and techno babble to make it seem like it's too complicated for you to understand uh when these these forces are not that complex what's going on here uh, and if demand. money money has always been boring to you if finance has always been un- uninteresting then it worked uh you you didn't learn anything about money in school for a reason what money it is what it right what it really is and what why it's here right that that's the part they don't really they gloss over it real quickly and then they go on to oh and then the government controls it so don't worry about it <laughs> right right yeah some pe- really smart people at the federal reserve they take care of it for you yeah don't worry they've, they've got it yeah all right well i guess that's all we got guys uh ben thanks for coming on man hey it's always a pleasure sir welcome back guys hope you enjoyed that chat that i had with ben If you want to check out the video that he was talking about, how the economic machine works, I've got that linked down in the show notes below. If you guys are enjoying the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, please leave me some thumbs up or some stars on whatever platform you're listening to the show on. It really goes a long way. Like reviews are huge, especially if you're listening on like iTunes uh, podcast service. But you guys can find the Bitcoin Echo Chamber on pretty much any of your favorite podcasting services, whether it be Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, Podbean, uh, Google Podcasts. We're on a bunch of them. Anchor is the main one and Anchor distributes it out to all those platforms for me. So I don't have to do all that work. But any of those platforms that you guys leave a review for me on, it helps me out tremendously. Or if you guys just want to find all of our episodes in one place, you can go to bitcoinechochamber.com. I've got all the episodes listed there. You can also get in contact with me there. Uh, my email's listed there. If you want it now, it's bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com. You can send me a message if you've got comments about the show or if you have questions or if you want to try to come on as a potential guest. Uh, I'd be glad to work that out with you through email. Or you can contact me on Twitter at heavilyarmedc. That's the letter C. My DMs are always open if you guys have questions or comments or anything like that. Love hearing from you guys. And I really appreciate everyone who tunes in every single week. If you want to support the show, I have a link for that on my anchor. I also have a link for it on the website, bitcoinechochamber.com. Don't expect it, but of course, it's always appreciated. And I will see you guys next week.
Whoa!